0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has me. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kolkowski. of course, is getting ready for a monster bash out of... This year, Kenton, Ohio, not just the site of Pro Football Hall of Fame, but the Monsters are coming out uh, this weekend. Yitzko's going to talk a little bit about a film that he wants to see, a film that he's hoping to see again that he's seen many times. And he's going to be talking about that film coming up soon, uh, a classic if there ever was one, I guess. Uh, I want to talk about a film that I did not know about, but I don't feel so bad because uh, no less of a personage than uh, Martin Scorsese himself. Said that he did not know about this film, although he was very much a a rat of the movies. He would go and spend Saturday afternoons in the movies and spend many of his uh, summer evenings, you know, filling up on films. We talked about uh, Bogdanovich, Spielberg, and Scorsese, and a lot of these young guys who really became, you know, film geeks uh, to the ultimate. Scorsese didn't discover this film until one night it was showing on some late show. Um, and he had never, he didn't even know about it, uh, which, is, which is quite strange because it's 1945's film that is probably one of the most unique films of any era. Uh, it's called Leave Her to Heaven. Uh, it was directed by John M. Stahl, who was Yankiv Stralinsky, um, who was the director of the original um, Imitation of Life and Magnificent Obsession, uh, later remade in the 50s uh, soaps by Douglas Sirk. Uh, Stralinsky, this was probably Stralinsky's greatest film, and it has uh, stars really a uh, star turn, uh, a Oscar-nominated performance by Gene Tierney, who we've talked about before. Uh, it's one of the one of these films. He like, up that that most people have a hard time deciding what is it. Uh, and when Scorsese saw it, he was also like mesmerized by it. He he says in a YouTube. Uh, clip that you can see uh, that every time he sees it's a different movie and uh, he of course put his shoulders behind the restoration of this film and restoration was 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 important because this film was shot in Technicolor and it was shot in beautiful location shots uh, throughout California, New Mexico, Arizona, Um, and it's 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 one of the, the most beautiful looking films Uh, that you could probably hope to see. Uh, And its its subject matter is so difficult to swallow and accept. Uh, As I said, Jean Turney is a star and she plays a woman who loves so much that she will do anything to keep her love. She loves in such an obsessive way that she is a monster in her love. Um, the, that is the Jean Turney role. She plays Ellen. Uh, her, uh, the love interest in this film is Cornel Wilde. Uh, Cornel Wilde, a Jewish Hungarian actor, um, escapes me. His, his Yiddish woman escapes me at this point. But uh, Cornel Wilde was someone that was uh, good looking enough to be able to uh, star in a number of, of Hollywood vehicles. Um, I remember a film he made in the '60s that I once saw on, on on the ABC Sunday Night Movie that that haunted me for for years afterward, which was called The Naked Prey, where he is um he's being chased by uh, by African warriors, a white guy, and uh, they are after him for the whole movie, and he's running around in a loincloth the whole time. and barely has any dialogue, uh, but he was in pretty good shape back, even in the '60s. And this film, he's he's quite young. And I, I can't say that he does any great any amount of acting, but he clearly is someone who is pained and perplexed. And uh, initially uh, he is uh, seduced totally and completely by this woman that he meets on the train. Uh, the, the film is told in flashback with a flashback device, which is really not that important. Um, you, you, you get the sense in the beginning of the film uh, that he's been in prison for some reason. Uh, and that he's going to go find someone. and You don't know who that is. Uh, And then the film begins in the flashback and you sort of are anticipating that there is going to be a crime. There's something going to happen. Although you're told it's only two years in prison. So, hmm, I guess he's not going to be a murderer, is he, for two years in prison? And yet murder is definitely something that you know is going to rear its head. It takes a while for it to happen, but you can sense it coming uh in, in it turns out that this writer uh, played by Cornell Wilde, uh who writes uh some of these i guess pop boilers or uh you know uh, i guess this, this sort of like the, the Thomas Tyron or Margaret Mitchell of his time or some not the Stephen King, but someone who's written a number of popular books um is working on a book and he's going out to uh, New Mexico it turns out that he's on the same train with. Jean Tierney's character and she he's staring at her like any male would stare at someone as beautiful as Gene Tierney, and she when she notices she's being stared at returns the stare in a way that causes him to be extremely uncomfortable because she stares at him with a power that he can't even muster and she apologizes and right away the film shows you how weird it is when she says I'm sorry for staring at you but you remind me so much of my father <laughs> and what what happens is, it turns out, of course, like an all Hollywood uh, coincidence. Of course, this is based on a, uh, on a on a on a on a on a bestseller that was actually optioned as it was being written by by the studio. But as usually these these coincidences happen, it turns out they're going to the same place. It turns out that the writer and this beautiful woman and her mother and her stepsister cousin, so to speak, an adopted cousin who's sort of like a sister in a way. Uh, are being taken to the same beautiful New England mountain home, um, uh, New Mexico, I'm sorry, mountain home, where he's supposed to stay to work on his book. But working on his book is the farthest thing from his mind when he realizes this woman uh, is there, and she's there with the ashes of her dead father. And she's there to go out into some incredible canyon-type space, to go out by horseback, and she, uh, Jean Tierney riding horseback in a in a somewhat of a tight sweater is <laughs> holding these ashes of her dad. Uh, and um Cornell Wilde follows her uh and watches from afar as she spreads the ashes, because this was the place where she had so much beautiful, loving time with her father. It becomes clear that the mother who has accompanied them on this on this on this trip has never even been to New Mexico. And it's clear that there is a terrible relationship between a gene tyranny and I think it was Mae Phillips who plays uh, the mother um, your typical, as we know it 's called the Electra complex, where the opposite of the edipal complex that you basically love your mother to the point you love your father to the point that you are going to kill or do whatever it is to to banish your mother, and you see that there is hardly any sense of relationship uh, between them, and you also find out that uh, the half sister or the cousin who becomes a sister, played by Jeannie Crane. Uh, later, to also become a leading lady in Hollywood, but more like a June Allison uh, character. I mean, you have these two very attractive girls, but the film uh, makes it clear that the more central one, the more predatory one, is the Jean Tierney. Jeannie and Jean, so to speak. And Jean Tierney is the the sister who always wins. Um, One of the themes in this film is that not only is there Electra, but also she's almost like these uh, these these siren mermaids. Uh, she's an expert swimmer, uh, and you know she's you see her swimming in the uh, in a two-piece actually, and shows you a little bit where or Holly was going for scale a little bit over here in a two-piece where uh, she is um, uh, swimming uh, in this beautiful sort of pool that. Uh, this fellow has in New Mexico and the fellow has some children and you would think if you're swimming you know you're just going to enjoy the swim no no Ellen always wins Ellen Brent always wins she's not just a swimmer she needs to win in everything and and this is what the Cornell Wilde hears that this is a woman that always wins um that she gets what she wants no matter what uh he also hears that uh the adoption that occurs for Jeannie Crane was not by the father but by the mother adopted her because there was this weird relationship. Um, uh, and again, the film really pushes the Hays Code here about the relationship that she had with her father um, to the point that the Jeannie Crane character, the character called Ruth, <laughs> you can't get more of a pure character than Ruth uh, with a name like Ruth. Ruth becomes the, um, the daughter mm-hmm. that she wants to have. She's not really a daughter but she's the daughter that gets the love from this mother who the mother can't obviously give it to um the to the to gene Terney's character because of the of, of the hatred that exists between them why cornell wilde doesn't run like hell from this like clearly dysfunctional family again is one of the things that um, yeah, again, uh, it wouldn't be a Hollywood melodrama if he would do the normal thing, but instead, uh, she pursues him obviously out of this obsession that, in some strange way, he reminds her of her father. Uh, and although she's engaged, she actually is wearing an engagement ring. And who is she engaged to? She's engaged to someone that's, that that haunts some of your favorite films. Although I know you told me you don't really appreciate it much as an actor, she's engaged to the very young Vincent Price who in 1945 was still considered somewhat of a dashing, not a leading man, but definitely handsome enough uh, to be a lotharious villain sometimes. In this case, he is a up-and-coming fellow who is running for office. And uh, (laughs) when he discovers uh, from a letter that she writes to him that she's no longer engaged to him, that she's throwing off her engagement ring and she's going and she announces to a surprise to everyone that she's actually engaged to uh, Cornell Wilde, uh, the writer Richard Harland, um, and Richard, he takes her. Uh, Cornell takes her into a room and says, "Oh, this is what you want, right? He'll go, oh, of course. Don't you know this is the way it always works? In most cases, she tells him that that women ask the, the men <laughs> to marry them. They just think that they're asking them. In other words, she's the ultimate plotter. And this is, and she's saying, this is what all women do. And uh, before he knows it, they are married in some sort of quick ceremony. But there's a catch." And the catch is that besides being a successful writer, and everybody seems to be gushed up with guilt over here. I mean, Hollywood loves, you know, that there's this beautiful house in New Mexico, and of course, the Brents have some beautiful seaside home uh, somewhere near Cape Cod, and Harland has—I'm going to tell you in a minute—he has not only a house somewhere, but he also has a cottage on a beautiful back area in Maine. Well, here's the rub: that Harlan comes with some baggage too. He has a brother who suffers from polio, who is being hospitalized or being uh, cared for in Hollywood's favorite spot, Roosevelt's own Warm Springs, uh, Georgia, which was where Roosevelt felt those springs could somehow help his polio. And of course, the March of Dimes was very much connected to Warm Springs. They would bring many polio victims there to to uh, to recuperate there, with the hope that somehow the effect of the power of that water would somehow help them. So he has a little brother. The little brother Richard. The little brother Richard's little brother is played by again Yitzhak, one of your favorite actors' brothers. Uh, we talked about Dwayne Hickman. Dwayne Hickman's older brother Daryl plays Danny Harlan. Of course, uh, uh, Daryl Hickman had been in a number of films uh, as a child actor. Um, and again, he's, he's no Freddie Bartholomew based on last week, but he was—he has quite a resume, quite a, a, a filmography. Um, and in this film, I guess he plays about thirteen or fourteen years old, um, approximately. And in the beginning, of course, um, you know they—they they actually move and they buy a cottage near his hospital. But then, when the doctor in the hospital suggests that now that you live so close by, that instead of him staying in the hospital, he should live with the Harlins. So she, <laughs> you can tell she doesn't want that to happen. Ellen does not want anything intruding on the love life that she has with, with, her, with her husband. And of course, immediately when uh, the husband shows up, uh, she lies in front of the doctor and says, oh, the doctor told us the most wonderful news. Um, she, and then you already know something is going to happen. Uh, it's called, whenever you uh, introduce a crippled character, there's a reason. Uh, This was not the time of intersectionality. This wasn't the time of Hollywood like today where we just want to have um, representation Hollywood at that time, if there was a character who was black, a character who was a Jew, a character who has polio, somehow that's going to weigh in in some important way in the story. You already know that. That's sort of like Chekhov said, if you're going to have a gun in the first act, it better go off in the third act. And of course it does. Because it turns out that although it would seem they're living some sort of bliss as they move back. To the backwaters of Maine, uh, in that wonderful uh, back place where uh, Cornell Wilde and, and Hickman, these two brothers, have been living, along with the guy who takes care of the place, the Im- imitable Chill Wills. You, you know, it's I, I, you know, you have here the uh, you have the triumvirate of the these Hollywood saw. right? I think it's Andy Devine. Um, Slim Pickens and Chill Wills, right? You know, I think you have, you know, these three are sort of these three uh, you know, interchangeable Southern guys. They were in a lot of Western films um, and, and and other films as well. Uh, we talked, of course, about about the Slim Pickens and and uh, Dr. Strangelove and uh, Andy Devine, of course, in the Man of shot Liberty balance uh chill wills uh, i don't know if he painted i don't know if he had as illustrious as a career but somehow chill wills is in this film and he's actually strumming a banjo as well like and he, he definitely does not sound like your typical main uh carekeeper they don't even try to give him like one of these new england accents but chill wills is there as well to be the good solid honest decent human being in the film um because everybody else is clearly there's nothing wrong with it. Every single person. That's why this is really like a film noir uh, in many ways, because it turns out that uh, as they're living in this in this house, um, she would like this, and, and there's a a, a real, ero- almost a semi-erotic moment where you know, even though they're a separate beds, she gets into, uh, uh, you know, she's wearing a negligee or a an nightgown, and uh, she she uh, enters her the bed of of her husband. And they have separate beds, and. And you can hear the knock on the, on the paper thin wall where uh, the brother says, Hey, you guys up? I hear you guys. And you can tell how frustrated she is. Um, but not just frustrated to the point of, you know, <laughs> let's put up some room dividers or something that could uh, dull the noise here, but rather frustrated to the point that you know that she is not going to let um, his brother really hang around. And uh, although uh, they are, um, they engage uh, the brother Daryl uh, Hickman, known as Danny in the film, uh, you know, somehow they are like brother and sister. She puts a suntan lotion on him and he goes out swimming. Uh, and she's, they're practicing secretly that he's going to be able to swim uh, three quarters or maybe the whole lake. Um, she takes him out into the boat with the boat and encourages him to go swimming, uh, to push himself further than he ever has. And she is like, like in a sense, talking to him, uh, trying to give him one last chance when she says to him, "You know, my parents will take you um, to Boston and you're gonna be able to uh, hang out and, and, and go to school and you can live with my mother and my stepsister and you can live in Boston or, or on Cape Cod, you're gonna like it there. No, no, he says, I want to live with you guys. I want to be with you. So then she says, OK, I guess the only thing I can do is basically kill this guy, she doesn't really kill him, actually. Uh, but as she's sitting there in beautiful technicolor lake, wearing this incredibly virginal white bathrobe and dark glasses covering the, these intense eyes that Gene Turney has, um, you can see uh, Hickman get into the into the water And she, of course, is pushing it even further and further away from the shore uh, with encouragement. And there is no music at all. And this, again, is a wonderful, masterful uh, decision by Strelinsky to stop any sort of music. And you can just see yourself out on this boat. And you can hear um, Hickman's uh, cries when he gets a cramp and he's gone out too far and his appeal to Ellen to save him. And she, of course, is the most expert of swimmers. And she just sits in the boat and lets him drown. I would say, Yitzhak, I, that this is probably one of the most gruesome and and, and really uh, uh, deaths of, of 40s Hollywood. I, I want to rank it together with Kiss of Death's, Tommy Udo's, Richard Widmark, uh, taking the grandmother or the great aunt, whoever it was, uh, Victor Mature, and you know, taking the telephone cord and wrapping it around her and pushing her down a flight of stairs, which it was terrible to see. But there was something even more ugly, because you expect Richard Widmark to be this ugly psycho. That was his whole persona. Here you have uh, uh, beauty personified. You have this Aphrodite. You have this incredible mermaid-like person, this and she is bad, <laughs> very, very evil indeed. And evil because, but not like a Republic uh, serial villain who is just saying, oh, oh, "I'm just evil, I'm Cruella, I'm just." No, you no. Know, like she, she, she feels that she is misunderstood. She feels that she, she. Of course, she's going to get rid of Daddy because how much she loves his brother, and the, and she doesn't want to share him because how much she wants to give. Um, and uh, it, it's clearly that at that point, uh, Cornell Wilde, uh, as, as Richard Harland, realizes that something's amiss. Uh, they move out of Maine, they go to Boston, and it's clear some uh, some sort of friendship or more is happening between him and the younger sister because he suspects that something's going on. He knows his wife was an expert swimmer. Doesn't ring true that somehow she, that he went out so far that she wasn't able to jump in the water early enough to save him. If something sounds wrong, fishy, so to speak, but uh, they grow distant. And Jeannie Crane gives, in in a very poignant moment, she gives her sister uh, an idea that if you want him to love you again, why don't you give him something to love? Why don't you have a child? And here again, the film against Kralinsky and his writers push this into an area that's so unusual for 1940s films. What happens is, is that, yes, she's going to get pregnant. They're going to have a baby, but she's going to hate herself for her pregnancy. She's going to hate how being pregnant misshapes her body and how ugly she looks, that she's no longer this incredibly beautiful woman who... Uh, you know, kid can, can look so wonderful because of, of this devil that's growing inside of her, she says. And then when the doctor played by Gene Lockhart, who's always great whenever he comes in, when I mentioned him playing a Dr. Yitzchak, of course, in The Sea Wolf. Uh, where he played uh, the doctor who kills him who gives him some suicide. Once again, I guess Gene Lockhart probably played a doctor in a lot of films. I don't know how many. But Gene Lockhart comes in playing the doctor and telling her, of course, that she needs to rest. Obviously, uh, she's bleeding or something. And, you know, that in order in order to save this child, uh, she needs to stay in bed, which means that her husband is going out shopping and and enjoying himself with the stepsister or the sister, the Genie Crane. Um and it's there she conceives of her next murder. And again, in, in today's society of Roe v. Wade being overturned, here you have what's her option here? What she's going to do because she doesn't want to be sidelined. Uh, she dresses herself up in uh, her most beautiful gown and 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 and, and you know preps herself. It's so it's so it's such a, a a incredibly evil act. She's going to abort her child, but she gets herself as beautiful as possible in order to ready herself to to fling herself down the stairs in order to do that. Um with sort of the idea that perhaps she slipped. Um and uh so this is murder number two, so to speak. Um and why does she do this? You know, why is it that she is? Uh, uh, why has she killed this child? Uh, and they discover, of course, that it would have been a boy, uh, and it could have been, in a way, the you know, using the metaphor from the Torah of Yibum, I- this could have been perhaps the re- the the child dead, you know, his brother coming back, so to speak. This could have given him some sort of what she needed was psychiatric help. She needed help. Um, and, and, and but because of her beauty and because of her intelligence uh, that she never was a nebuch instead she was this preening victor that everybody just sort of hated and, 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 and felt um, uncomfortable with um, so even though Jeannie Crane says I've tried to make you love me but, but I can't, you can't love anything you can only love yourself and love what you want um, and, and, and she turns to her in uh Jean, Jean crane uh, i'm sorry Jean terny and she turns to her and says you know look you know you know I, i'm i'm hoping that you could do something for me and of course at that point she realizes that she has nothing um she knows and it's there she uh Tyron power overhears uh the conversation and confirms to him his suspicions about what's happening and what's going on um and he tells her that he's going to leave her uh there's no way they could they could live together anymore And now that he knows, she admits that she basically let his brother die. And it's that point that the film takes the murdering aspect up even a greater notch. Uh, And this allows Vincent Price uh, to finally have uh, his (laughs) Hammy role in the third act of the film. Uh, What she conceives of is that, well, if she can't have him, she's not going to let Ruth have him. and Ruth actually just wants to go away and just leave this family completely. But in, 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 in uh, Ellen's mind, in, in Jean Turney's mind, what she's going to do is, is fashion her revenge. And what she's going to have is revenge from the grave. She's actually going to let herself be killed. She's actually going to plant arsenic in, uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in a salts bottle that she knows is going to be used at a picnic that's coming up. And she's going to let herself be poisoned uh, and plant clues to indicate that she has been poisoned and killed. In fact, um, she writes a letter to uh, Vincent Price, who is now a district attorney, who that she suspects that they are plotting against her to kill her. And and she writes specifically, you know, I want my body to be buried in the cemetery. But she tells uh, on her deathbed. She tells um, Cornel Wilde that she's actually wants to be cremated and her ashes to be spread together with her father's, where she spread her father's ashes. Now, she didn't write that in her will. (laughs) She gave them that orally. So although the film doesn't take you back to New Mexico to see that, what it turns out is is that it makes it seem as if there's a conspiracy between Cornel Wilde and Jeannie Crane to actually cover up the murder uh, that they had been plotting. Um, And that what they were actually doing is cremating her body, so you wouldn't be able to find the arsenic that was in the salts uh, that was found somehow on the dress of her sister inside a packet that she had planted. and. Uh, you know, again, as I said, uh, Vincent Price has a fun time uh, pursuing his prosecution, like right? Perry Mason's, isn't it true or isn't it true? And you, you know why you were doing this. Uh, Jeannie Crane gets to faint uh, under the intense persecution where she admits that she's always loved this, her brother-in-law. Um, and it's only Cornell Wilde taking the stand and saying, I'm going to tell you what it was that she, you know, that this was a plot to reach from beyond the grave. And to actually, she was so vile and such a monster that uh, she wanted from beyond the grave to be, to, to have her control and she'd be willing to bring everybody down the same way she had destroyed her mother. She's going to destroy her sister, destroy her husband, because that if something she can't have it, she's going to destroy it and control it. Um, so that is, you know, it's, it really is a film that, you know, it sounds so soap operish, but it's done with such style, such, such panache, such a beautiful um, imagery. Um, and I, it's really a shame, I guess, that Jean Tierney did not win the Oscar for this, because she, she really, I think, is able, in ways that I don't think I ever saw her play uh, a role better. Uh, Laura and some of the other films that we've talked about that she's made. I think this is really definitely her her best role. Again, it, it, it's a film that overwhelms you with its beauty and it also really shocks you um, and makes you think that maybe villain, yes, to the nth degree, yes, but perhaps that villain didn't have to become a villain. Perhaps there would have been a way that if that person, if people would have treated her differently. It's possible that this Type of psychosis would not have reared its head in, in such a way again i don't know what pharmacology could have done at that time but it's clear that the attitudes of everyone around this incredibly powerful person did nothing it got to to help her at all and it's almost like um you know as as as, 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 a, as a as a animal of prey uh, cannot really change this is what she has to be and, and that way, it's sort of like a, a, an interesting contemplation about the nature of evil and why people do such terrible things, which I think is a good segue. It's like, for your film, uh, where we also have someone who feels himself terribly wronged by his employers and decides the ultimate vengeful plot of what he's going to do, right? It's uh, Bella Lagosi in uh, Jean Yarbrough's
1: 1940 classic movie that I've seen many, many, many times called The Devil Bat, which is, it's also known as Killer Bats, which I always thought was a better title, personally uh, as a as, as a younger person, because I think it was more of a science fiction type of a t- title, but in any event this is a very cheap uh, rather short movie, it's, it's good for people like me with a short attention span where you have this story of uh, this character Dr. Paul Carruthers which doesn't sound like the type of name that you would expect uh, a Hungarian uh, someone you know with a Hungarian accent he must have changed the name at, at, at Ellis Island or something and he's the local doctor of a town called Heathville which is named after this uh, family the Heath family that had hired Dr. Carruthers to help them form all kinds of Uh, colognes and aftershaves and and other uh, other things that uh, are uh, you know uh, perfumes and things and you open we the film opens up with Bela Lugosi in his laboratory you know with all of these beakers and and uh, and 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 uh, Bunsen burners and things going on and then he opens a a fake door, and he and behind there he has in a some kind of a big closet, he has another fake door, and then he you find that he is using some kind of electrical apparatus to take regular sized bats and turn them into giant giant bats and you know in the far away uh the far away shots you see a a rubber you know uh, kind of a bat, yeah. and then the close- up shots yeah. they actually show a, a flying fox, a big a big fruit bat, which is an actual bat that's actually the size of yeah. what is being presented in the in the film. They're, they're actually bats with six foot long wings, wingspan. Now, yeah. none of them are dangerous.
0: Now, what's the and what is the um, scientific advantage or the uh, uh, the commercial advantage of of growing larger bats? What's the idea that
1: he? That I think it's just because it it makes the movie seem interesting. Really, you know, he, you know, Lugosi plays a mad scientist, obviously, which he played much more than he ever played Dracula on film or any or any type of vampire for that matter. He very, very rarely played Dracula or any vampire so, on film. So, but so, so, so quite he's often, quite often played this mad scientist character, and they. <laughs> And quite often he would be doing something that seems totally nonsensical. <laughs> okay. but, but he's but he's here. working
0: for a company, right? He's he's not just yeah. a mad scientist that has his own crazy lab. He's actually working for some sort of um, some sort of uh, bigger big conglomerate,
1: right? right? But it's it's a secret that he's making these bats into giants, and
0: mm-hmm. also
1: he discovered that some uh, chemical that he found drives the bats crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I always enjoyed this scene, you know, where he's, he has these goggles on and he's looking through the window and and with this like evil smile watching the bats being made into giants, you know, with this apparatus. uh, But there is, it's a secret. There is no, there is no uh, pharmaceutical or or commercial benefit in making giant bats, but rather... (laughs) Um It's it's uh, he's out to to take revenge on those that he feels oh, that have wronged him. And that and 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 how,
0: how do they wrong him. him? How was he wrong? Tell me, tell me what, again. I, I I gave you the motivation of my villain. Tell me again. This is a villain show. Why is in the plot? Does he feel he needs to take revenge? What is? You know, why does he, he feel he was wrong?
1: that I see you working a, a, in the prison where so many bad you know criminals see themselves as the victims and here here's a man who is being supported by the heath family uh to to do their bit you know to to work for them and and they they pay his bills they they support him they keep him in this humongous laboratory that they're all paying for and they give him this check to to show their appreciation for all the help he's done and he feels that all of that is his money. It's all, it's almost like a communist type of ideology that he feels. You know, him as the worker, as opposed to the the investor who's taking the risk okay. to lose. Something.
0: So so the Heath Company, what he what, what he has developed for them is an aftershave lotion,
1: right? That's and what he, he developed. He developed all kinds of colognes and perfumes over the years, and that's how they became very very wealthy. Mm-hmm. And but in order to take his revenge he tries to have each of them put on this aftershave lotion. And when he lets the bats loose, they're attracted to it and they attack whoever is wearing this cologne, this aftershave. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: And And the aftershave is very, I guess, it's such a great smelling feeling aftershave that everybody is wearing it. And anybody who's wearing it is going to be attacked somehow by these bats that he has created that
1: have been it's, it's, he gives it only to the people that he specifically wants to victimize he hasn't mm. released it yet he's you know he's saying that this is you know something that is being offered as a, a you know that that he's trying to work on and he's trying to see how you know people enjoy it or not and and if they like it and so they're all trying it. all the members of the, of the Heath family are all trying it um you know but they're the Heath family call him they invite him they want to give him this check. They want to show their appreciation and and he he is offended by you know how dare they uh you know give him this, this pittance when when they made all this money off of his back and you know he's he's not uh you know that, that, and,
0: you that so we also have to of course mention that like any all of these films, no matter what they are, the devil bath, it's not really a horror film unless uh there's some woman who is under attack and here we have Uh, The Heath heiress, right? Played by that wonderful actress, Susan Caron.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, right.
0: Um, I'm not sure exactly, um, you know, a Brooklynite. I'm not sure if she was Jewish or not, um, but uh, she was one of the original Rockettes. (laughs) So I guess she looked good enough uh, to be able to, uh, right? To be able to... um, uh, to be at least act that part. I'm sure she doesn't have to do much acting in this film, did she?
1: No, not quite, though. No. But there is there's a character they uh played by Dave O'Brien and Donald Kerr. <laughs> they're they're kind of the good guys in the film. And they're the, the protagonists and they're they're kind of comic relief. They're trying to be somewhat of a poor man's Abbott and Costello and the and the uh director, Gene Yarbrough, directed Avon Costello on five direct, uh occasions and also directed bowery boys on five occasions so there's a lot a lot of uh you know attempted comic relief they're not particularly funny it's the same type of thing that i I mentioned that there was a movie uh the ape man that doesn't that makes even less sense than this movie (laughs) but it's uh it's one of the strange movies that uh that were made by this uh one of these poverty uh, robes. All
0: uh, right, uh, so so Yitzhak, if, we we know that uh, uh, as we said before in, in in our film, you know, the evil person never gets away with it. Um, we know that uh, that Carruthers will not get away with it, but he is gonna. There are gonna be a couple people that are gonna be killed by the bats uh, before it's discovered that
1: he's the guy behind it, right? Exactly. Yeah, and then and then the so the the. Uh, the newspaper reporter, he throws some of the at the end of the movie. I mean, it's obvious that that's what's going to happen. In the end. He throws some of this uh, this aftershave on Lugosi, and the bat kills him, and that's and that's the end of that. So it's interesting, you know, this movie,
0: which you said is in the public domain, and everybody has it on some sort of cheapo DVD that they bought. You told me this before we started recording. Uh, I, I noticed when I look on the on, did a little not much research here, but Uh, uh, five years later, there was the devil bat's daughter. (laughs) I'm I'm not sure if uh somehow they got a hold of of Lagos of of Carruthers' original um original (coughs) way to create these devil bats, but it looks like looks like Hollywood felt hey, let's let's bring it back again. He's not in
1: that movie, and he's dead, he has to, right? He has to, So it's it's more of a psychological thriller in it, but it kind of it it kind of it upslugs the whole first movie it really makes Carruthers into a good guy
0: well the devil bats daughter Uh
1: uh-huh yeah yeah I I think I've only watched it once I know I have it on DVD but Mm
0: -hmm. there's a
1: similar film which George Zuko played the mad scientist called the flying serpent which is a very similar type of a very similar type of a story apparently in 2015 someone made an in and in, in indie film called Revenge of the Devil yeah, Bat actually
0: according to according to this 2020 actually 2020 they made Revenge of the Devil Bat which is a sequel to yeah so it, it sounds like this film has gotten more of a life than Leave It to Heaven um
1: you know yeah it, I, I i never heard of Leave It to Heaven but i <laughs> i i grew up watching Devil Bat since <laughs> since i was a kid i you know i see here on the wikipedia page they mention one of our one of the main uh, stays at, at Monster Bash is Tom Weaver, who uh, writes a lot of books and things. And he he says that in the book that he wrote called Poverty Row Horrors, that he thinks this was really the best of Lugosi's Poverty Row films, which I think uh, Invisible Ghost, a lot of people think may have been somewhat better. But I think...
0: And, he... I think Strelinski, who we mentioned before, John Stahl, John M. Stahl was, I think, one of the main uh producers and directors of the poverty world. so i I'm sure Arbro and, and Stahl knew each other. Um, you know, they were sort of like again every everything in Hollywood is sort of like incestuous in this way. They all very borrowed and took from each other. Um, and it, 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 it's, it's strange again, right <laughs> yeah. somehow, somehow, this film like with its with its as you said, you know, sort of like the rubber bats and um you know hokey type of uh, camera work and and here, you know, the, the the lavish, beautiful, Technicolor stuff that's in Leave It to Heaven is somehow, you know, nobody even knows about it. Um, and yet, The Definitely. Devil Bat, you know, <laughs> The Devil Bat is probably going to be seen by more people and applauded by more people than what's, you know, I would say is, you know, a, a real psychological film noir masterpiece. Um, Leave It to he- Leave Her to Heaven. Uh, by the way, Leave Her to Heaven again. I should mention again is based on um, a quote from Hamlet. Where they're talking about uh, revenge against the queen, and um, uh, Hamlet is told, "Leave her to heaven, and heaven itself will wreak their own revenge on these people as the thorns that somehow uh, will tacken her, her in a bosom." So this is somehow the idea that there's certain certain people you just have to let fate, let Shamayim take care of in terms of in terms of what uh, they're going to do. And, I, and again, it was, there's nothing like a great villain. We know that, and, and without villains there are no films right you know films about good guys uh just about you know generally and again this is part of the problem with the batman franchise uh you know the faggie heath ledger's joker was you know was was a lot meant a lot more to people than christian bale's batman uh nicholson's joker uh was you know out outshined Uh, michael keaton's batman as well um and and this is really uh, films really to not have a dramatic power uh, and a moral type of uh, direction unless there is someone who we see going wrong that we can say, no, don't be like that. What is wrong with that? And 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 even the gangster films of the 30s, these uh, incredible characters, whether they were played by George Raft or played by Paul Muni or Edward G. Robinson or Cagney, um, we are drawn to them by... Uh, what makes them so salacious, what makes them so mendacious, what makes them so plotting, and and we see elements of ourselves in them. I'm not sure, and like you say, there are in many ways the Heath Company uh, has been, uh, although they took care of him, perhaps they didn't give him enough uh, covet, they didn't give him enough uh, fame, and et cetera, and perhaps, again, I, I'll, I don't know if the Devil Bat deserves this type of Discussion, but maybe one should wonder: had someone, you know, somehow stopped him before uh, uh, he decided to go on to his uh, plot, his nefarious uh, revenge? Maybe, maybe this was someone whose whose wisdom and understanding, like all oh, mad scientists, could somehow be used for something positive. You know, uh, I mean, like,
1: and, and these are the type of things that I see in real life. You know, working with prisoners seeing the talents that they have and that they use so much for for bad you know for you know that if they would have just used all of their their intelligence for something positive something productive they wouldn't be in the in the mess that they're in
0: right but 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 it really as i said in my uh, summary of leave her to heaven it's the people around the villains that could really change things. And again, and I, I didn't see the the um, um, Joaquin Phoenix film, The Joker, but I know it's based on the uh, the Alan Moore's um, the Batman classic comic called The Killing Joke, where it seems again there's a reason why the Joker becomes the Joker. There's a, there there are factors. Um, it isn't just like the Nochosh, the Satan. I, I think Hollywood really wants us to look in the mirror a little bit and own up to the devils that are around us. Um, uh, Again, it's always easy to throw popcorn at the villain and say boo. And I think films that uh, expect more of us want us to 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 contemplate why people become the way they are. And maybe in some ways we're responsible for not confronting them, for not trying to stop them in their tracks, for not trying to talk to them, for not doing stuff, for not bringing in people that could perhaps have changed things obviously it makes for great drama and for great cinematography and for great action scenes when they do get out of hand and we do have to chase them and they are bringing us to, to court and they are plotting to in, in, with their schemes that's what makes it the excitement but i think that if we as we walk out of the theater maybe we should realize that these villains among us um, we're, in a way, all to blame. And we all know that, when it comes, again, getting rabbinic here for a minute, we all know that the, the, there was only 3,000 people who committed the Chet HaEgel uh, in actuality, yet everyone in Qal Yisrael, in some ways, bears responsibility for how they could have acted in a way that they could have stopped this from happening, whether they were happy in it happening, whether they didn't do enough, uh, they could have gotten involved, and I think we, as rabbis and as Jews, realize that that type of community. Yeah, we can enjoy the film, uh, but we can also perhaps take it to heart to to somehow get some uh, lessons of our responsibility to to support people before they devolve uh, into these types. And um, look, you know, um, this is in that way. I guess that once again we could say, yeah. <laughs> Watch your step, my friends, on the way out. We'll catch you next time. Take care, my friends. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.